Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. The Devil Fears Prayer Just imagine this scene. The devil sits in the back of the room during a strategy session. A dozen demons have gathered to hear a report on the life of an especially committed saint. He won't stumble, groused the imp responsible for his demise. No matter what I do, he won't turn his back on God. The council began to offer suggestions. Well, take his purity, one said. I tried, replied the fiend, but he is too moral. Take his health, urged another. I did, but he refused to grumble or complain. Or oh, take his belongings. Are you kidding? I've stripped the man of every penny and possession, yet he still rejoices. For a few moments, no one spoke. Finally, finally from the back of the room came the low-measured voice of Satan himself. The entire council turned as the fallen angel rose to his feet. His pale face was all but hidden by the hood. A long cape covered his body. He raised his bony hand and made his point. You must take what matters most. Oh, what is that? asked the subordinate. You must take his prayer. Don't allow Satan to take your prayer. Now in the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair offers us the keys to a better prayer life. How to get closer to God, stronger against evil, and healthier in life through prayer. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for taking some time to spend with us in the Archbishop's Corner where prayer becomes the goal for every Christian life. How are you today? Very well, thank you. And speaking of prayer, you had the rite of election at the cathedral last Sunday. Do you want to tell us about that? Oh, yes, I do. It's very interesting and very challenging. Um, you know, the rite of election simply means that since Easter is the great day for reception into the church and baptism, although it can be done throughout the year, of course, but and we're not talking here about infants, we're talking about baptism and reception into the church of adults. Mm -hmm. After the Second Vatican Council, there was a revival of the more ancient practice of, uh, at the beginning of Lent, the bishop in the cathedral or some other designated church officially accepting the candidacy of those who are preparing for baptism and or reception into the full communion of the Catholic Church if they're already baptized. You know, what's interesting here and challenging in Hartford and Connecticut in general, I don't know what happened in Norwich or Bridgeport yeah. with regard to the numbers, but we had about 250 people for whom this service was intended. Now, compare that when I was Bishop of Toledo in Ohio, that we would have about 600 a year. Mm. Compare that uh, to some of the dioceses in uh, like Texas, where there are several thousand a year. What I found interesting was uh, that most parishes that come to this have maybe one to five candidates to be either prepared for baptism at Easter or received into the Catholic Church and confirmed at Easter. But a couple of our Hispanic parishes have an overwhelming number of people who come to this for those two things. I mean, and it's so utterly disproportionate uh, 
Todos Los Santos, All Saints Parish in Waterbury, have, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's a huge crowd of people. And similarly, in New Haven, uh, St. Francis, uh, and these are uh, Hispanic people, uh, Latino people, who are, who are either being received into the church or baptized as adults. So much so that this year I made a point of being sure that a big chunk of my homily and a number of the prayers were done in Spanish as well as English. Um, and I think this says something to us. It's just a reality that the growth in our Catholic Church in Connecticut, where I should I can't speak for the rest of the state, but for Hartford, is largely uh, Hispanic Latino. And uh, that means two things in my mind. First of all, that we have to reinvigorate ourselves uh, in our uh, Anglo uh, uh, parishes and, and neighborhoods and churches to uh, really invite people uh, to our, join our Catholic faith and secondly, we have to make provision in how we operate and how we reach out to people to be very, very cognizant of the fact that we have to be conscious of the needs of, of Spanish language and of cultural things uh, regarding uh, Hispanic Latino people. You know, I've probably spoken before on, on the radio about our Office for Faith and Culture, which yeah. is doing a wonderful job of uh, reaching out to all of these ethnic groups. Uh, and uh, peoples. But uh, it's not something for an office just to do. I think all of us have to do this. And again, it's about being welcoming. Uh, uh, even in our parishes that are experiencing a lot of change, where parishes are being brought together as one, and communities that were separate are now being brought together as one, what kind of Catholics are we? What kind of really Christians are we if we're not open to our neighbor, especially our very own fellow Catholics, that we have to um, have a, a more welcoming uh, and uh, friendly uh, and inviting and participatory sense of, of the church if we're going to grow. You know, if we just want to keep everything that it's the way it's always been, even though everything around us has changed, or most everything, that leads to one outcome. But if we want to really be dynamic, as our Archdiocesan Synod tried to point us to, then we have to be, you know, open to these things. So I just, I'm, I'm talking at great length about this, but I think it's so important to recognize uh, what is happening. And I rejoice in the fact, when I see these hordes of people coming from a uh, Hispanic Latino parish for baptism or reception of the church, I couldn't be happier. I hear you saying, Archbishop, that it's not only the responsibility of the pastor to be welcoming and inviting, but also the entire parish community to be welcoming and inviting to bring people into the faith community. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and no, that's exactly what I meant, not just the priest. And the other thing, too, I'm glad you mentioned priests, though, because that's another aspect of this. You know, we have some wonderful priests in our archdiocese that come from other countries, some other cultures including Latino-Hispanic, and uh, how important that is, too. When, uh, you know, the original ethnic Catholic groups that came to the United States in the early 20th century, they were often accompanied by uh, mm -hmm. uh, priests from Europe uh, or other places to provide for their language needs. Well, and, and not just language, but culture. And similarly here, too, we wish we had even more, but we've been blessed with a number of priests, uh, you know, from uh, Latin America, uh, also, a priest from India and places uh, 
like that, Africa, who, who enrich our presbyterate and who can reach out to, to people of different cultures. So yes, it's for all of us to realize that, you know, and to, to do what we can to, to welcome, welcome everybody and to try to provide for their needs. Now, this past week, the state legislature heard uh, comments on a proposed bill allowing assisted suicide in the state of Connecticut. Do you want to comment on that? Yes, you know, this is a forever battle, it seems. I don't know how many, I forget how many times it's been brought up in the legislature here. And I think on a previous program, I was happy when the Alzheimer's group came out in opposition. I also saw an editorial in the Hartford Current where someone wrote, quit calling it aid in dying when it's really just assisted suicide. That's what it is. And, I, you know, I, I know of one person who uh, has a lot of uh, nursing experience, and she told me that she... Uh, this is the 13th time she's had to testify before our legislature's mm. committee against assisted suicide. It keeps coming up over and over and over again. The people who want this to happen just keep pressing ahead to try to change it. And they and won't give up ha- until it finally passes, correct? That's right. And we have to, I, I, I hope and pray, and I, I urge our, our listeners to uh, go to the Connecticut Catholic Conference uh, website and see how you can uh, – there's an apparatus set up that you can email your uh, your uh, elected uh, representatives in the legislature and tell them that you are opposed to this. Uh, we have, the, you know, an apparatus for doing this through the, through the Internet, and I would invite our people to do that, and all people of goodwill who recognize that this is not the answer. You know, I was thinking uh, our former president, Jimmy Carter, has done a great a Christian service – uh, by the fact that he is going into hospice care as the mm-hmm. end of his life draws near. And I saw on the web, somebody said, what is hospice care? And the fact that he's done this has raised these kinds of questions. And that's very important because that's the real answer. Hospice care today is such that all the, the stuff about people who are near the end, who are suffering and all that, that that's unnecessary to, to have this kind of suffering. Modern hospice care can provide a uh, dignified and uh, uh, death that is not racked with pain and suffering. Uh, so when President, former President Carter did this, I said, good. And he's making a, a Christian uh, decision, but it's not just Christian because, you know, what we believe about the right to life from uh, conception until natural death is not just some Catholic thing or even a religious thing. It's about the dignity and respect that's owed to the human person, including our own human person. So you've got me going here, Father, talking about all this stuff, but I, I, it is very timely, and I'm happy to have the occasion to say something about it. Important issues, Archbishop. Thank you. Tomorrow we observe the birthday of someone who is widely regarded as the most famous artist of the Italian Renaissance. Painter, sculptor, architect, and poet Michelangelo di Lodovico Buonarati Simoni, born on March 6, 1475, to a family of moderate means in the banking business. He became an apprentice to a painter before studying in the sculpture gardens of the powerful Medici family. And among his works, of course, are the David and the Pietà statues and the the Sistine Chapel frescoes. Our listeners know that both you and I studied together in Rome, so they know we have both seen much of Michelangelo's works in person. Tell us, what was your reaction the first time you visited the Sistine Chapel? Do you remember? Oh, I don't exactly remember when it was, but... Um, I think we were together. We had Mass, I believe, in the Sistine Chapel as a new classman. Well, I don't remember that. I do remember that on Corpus Christi, 
maybe I was in my second or third year in theology in Rome, they asked for the North American College to provide servers. And at that time, Pope Paul VI had uh, the Corpus Christi Mass in the Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. So I was a candle bearer, and I have a picture of me holding the candle next to the the deacon reading the gospel in the Sistine Chapel with Paul VI in the back and the last judgment behind him. That was quite a a wonderful experience in the early 70s to serve Mass in the Sistine Chapel. And then when I was working in Rome in the Secretary of State, that's when they were restoring the Sistine Chapel and they they had all the scaffolding up and were cleaning it. And I remember they told us that on a weekend, if we requested, we could go up in the elevator that had been set up in the Sistine Chapel to to see the rest what they were doing with the restoration. And you know how that is. I kept saying, well, next week or the week after, uh, I, I'm busy right now. And I never did it. Oh. And can you imagine, once that is done, that, that would never, at least not in, in our lifetimes or mm. several lifetimes, ever happen again, that they would be restoring the Sistine Chapel. But I remember people who did go up said you could you could see some of the strands of Michelangelo's brush uh, that were stuck in the in the pavement, you know, uh, mm. or in the um, plaster. Uh, so, yes, no, now you've got me reminiscing about all kinds of things, nice. but no, certainly Michelangelo's things are, are really spectacular. Really, That was a huge outpouring of art. You know, Bernini, Michelangelo, Raffaello, Caravaggio, all those great uh, painters at a time when uh, Catholicism was poised to be revived after all of the the, the you know terrible events of uh, the the Reformation and the split in Christianity. And art at that time, of course, was a means of educating uh, people in the faith. Well, it's still supposed to be that, but you know sometimes abstraction doesn't educate very well. Uh, abstract art, uh, but uh, yes, I mean art is the stained glass was always a great instruction to people about things in the Bible, the, the way to ex- and even. You know, a great cathedrals, our own cathedral of St. Joseph here in Hartford, uh, it's very modern, and on the outside it's quite stark. But inside, with the stained glass and the artwork that's there, there is a brochure that explains all these things, and that is a real education in the faith, too. The huge uh, ceramic reverdos behind the main altar, and the stained glass, and the etchings, and, and, and all, really tell quite a, a story of faith, Beautiful. the mysteries of the faith. Absolutely. Well, Archbishop, let's take a look now at our Gospel reading on this second Sunday of Lent, the fifth day of March. Today's reading is from Matthew's Gospel, the 17th chapter, and after the Gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you and ask for your thoughts and uh, what the Gospel means. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when lo, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them. Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
Now, Archbishop, what are your thoughts on this gospel of the Transfiguration? It's very interesting. Uh, it's preparing the apostles for what was to come, because Jesus uh, is uh, going to be facing his crucifixion. And here he takes his closest associates, his closest apostles, Peter, James, and John, and they have the privilege of beholding this vision. This, And I wouldn't even call it a vision in so much because it it involves Christ's physical presence with them there in his body of this uh, this reality. And at the end, we have the opposite kind of thing where Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And of course, they didn't know what he could possibly mean by that. But he was he knew that he was on the way uh, to Good Friday and Easter. And uh, in one of his letters, St. Peter talks about this, about when they were with Christ on the holy mountain and, and, and had this experience. So I think all of us uh, need to keep that vision before us, you know, the transfigured Christ, the resurrected Christ, when we are experiencing the crucified Christ mm-hmm. uh, and in his humility and in his humanity. And, of course, uh, recently when uh, we had our Holy Land pilgrimage, we were up on Mount Tabor, which is tradition uh, tells us is the, the the site, and it you you have the last part going up. You have to go in a little minivan. You can't. You, well, you could walk, but I can assure you, I would never be able to make that. Uh, and then you, it was a beautiful, beautiful day, clear, sunny, and you get the you can see really far. But it's uh, and we had mass there. It was a Sunday. We had mass in the in the beautiful church that's been erected there, the Church of the Transfiguration. But, you know, when you, when you come out and you, you look around, when you're on a mountaintop or a high place like that, it does give you a sense of beyond this world, you know, of, of really transcendence. Isn't and it I think amazing? that's what we should take from this gospel, too. Isn't it amazing how the scriptures come alive when you visit the Holy Land? Yes. I mean, it's not necessary for, for, for appreciating God's Word, because God's Word, of course, has its power and grace within it wherever you are. But it does. It's a form of meditation. I think when you when you're at all these places, you you and that's always been what underlies Christian pilgrimage. You know, making a pilgrimage is not just a vacation; it's a way to, I don't know, place yourself in the in the mysteries and to meditate and pray about that. And I, I think that's very important. Does the fact that Peter, James, and John were the specific apostles that Jesus chose to witness the transfiguration indicate? a position of privilege or prominence among the apostles for them? Well, I suppose so. You know, there was a certain hierarchy to Christ's uh, uh, followers. Uh, he had his inner circle. He had the 12. He had the disciples. He had, the, uh, yeah, his mother. You know, life is kind of hierarchical. Uh, it, you know, I mean, that's just human. Yeah. But in this case, it's also divine. And it's reflected in a kind of hierarchy of things, which doesn't mean... I think some people take that to mean higher and lower, but that's not really what it's about. It, it, it's not so much higher and lower as a diversity of responsibility, a diversity of witness uh, that people have. Uh, and of course, we have that too. In our, you know, our parents have, a, if you want to call it a hierarchy in our family life compared to other people, uh, uncles and aunts, cousins, kind of relation. It's about relationship, you know, and. Uh, that that's just part of uh, of uh, humanity, and it's really part of creation. 
the voice from the cloud was significant, not only for Peter, James, and John, but I think for all of us that come after. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Those last three words echo through the centuries, and I think they're for us too. Listen to him. Your thoughts on that? Well, Jesus himself talks about that, you know, about keeping his word, uh, hearing and keeping his word. And let's face it, uh, all of us, to the extent that we are sinful, we do not keep Christ's word, and so we ask for forgiveness. But then there are also those who harden their hearts and refuse to even listen, refuse to accept anything of the word that God speaks to us. Because remember, Christ is the word made flesh, as the prologue of John's gospel says. He is the word made flesh. What does the scripture say? If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And that's that becomes the refrain of the church through the centuries. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And during Lent, we have a wonderful today. It's a time, especially when we ought to take to heart the words of Christ. Beautiful. Let's look at some of the questions submitted by our listeners. For instance, Cindy from Windsor says, EWTN has a television show called Pro-Life Weekly featuring current issues in advancing a culture of life. I've watched it and found it very informative. I've encouraged my family and friends to watch it as well. With all the pro-choice press on mainstream media, how important do you think a show such as this is to the pro-life movement? Well, Cindy, obviously I think it's extremely important. It's crucial, and I'm very happy to know that you watch it, encourage others to do so, and that you find it helpful. Uh, Because, you know, in the world today there are a lot of competing voices, and uh, modern communications is a two-edged sword because on the one hand, it can give us a lot of misinformation, it can distort, it can mislead, but with people of integrity and faith, it can also do the opposite and inform and inspire and encourage and even mobilize, not for doing evil, but for doing good. So I, I'm happy to, to say that that's one of the things we can do to, to help. And again, I, I guess because of something we were talking about earlier, I can say that even here more locally, uh, you know, whether it's our Archdiocesan website or it's the website of the Connecticut Catholic Conference, we want to encourage as many people as possible to, to link in or whatever the right word is for it and to, uh, to speak up. You can speak up online, you know, in the, in the cause of something good. And Lucy from Wolcott has a question. Lucy says, when will we start receiving both the body and blood of Christ again? My friend goes to a Protestant church which uses small paper cups to avoid germs. Is this something we can incorporate in the Archdiocese of Hartford churches? Well, Lucy, yes. Uh, you, you can imagine that COVID put an end to receiving communion under both forms uh, from the with host and the chalice. I have to say, though, I do have some hesitation still with regard to just telling priests to start again, uh, those priests that that would like to to offer it, um, because, you know, only a priest is supposed to purify the vessels, that is, the paten and the chalice after communion is done. And, you know, for a priest to then have to uh, drink out of a chalice that 20 or 30 or 50 people have drunk out before— Or more. Or more before him— uh, I don't know that that uh, is something that I would uh, inc- ask priests to do or encourage them to do. So I am trying to monitor it, because uh, you're not the only one, Lucy, who's brought up this question. And uh, I, uh, in fact, I think I might take this up with uh, priest council when we meet. It would be a good thing to talk about, uh, just to see where we're at in this regard. So thank you for reminding me of that. 
Along with that, Archbishop, let me ask you, theologically, though, receiving just the body of Christ, does that mean that the communicant is missing out on something? No, the Church has never believed that, that to receive either form is to receive the whole Christ. You know, even people who have celiac disease and who don't want to receive a host, they could receive just from the chalice, and that would be their Holy Communion. There, mm-hmm. There's no question. The, the, the Church has always taught that Christ is a present whole and entire in, in either of the two, uh, what we call sacred species, either the, the host or the, or the chalice. Bruce from Marlboro says there are more drivers switching from gas-powered cars to electric vehicles, but there are not many places to power them in much of the country. I heard on the news that the rector of St. Paul and the Redeemer Episcopal Church in Chicago has partnered with a local nonprofit, Community Charging, to provide a charging station. The church averages a profit of around $40 per month from the service. There is currently only one church, Congregational Church of Somerville, that offers a charging station for electric vehicles in Connecticut. Is this something the Archdiocese of Hartford may think of considering to help fund churches? Well, I suppose we could, Bruce. I don't know how far developed this is, uh, but I will say this, and I don't mean to be a a naysayer, but you will find that the legal uh, complications and liabilities connected with doing something like that are huge. So um, I'd be interesting to, it would be interesting to see how, what kind of arrangement these churches have, plus the fact when you start to get into a business venture, it, does, it can complicate things considerably. But I, I assume your, your question is prompted by a desire to, uh, to, to bring people to a church that's offering some service that maybe it would be helpful. We'll just have to see how that all plays out. Jack from Meriden says, Every Mass I attend begins with a penitential rite, which I take to be the forgiveness of sins for those who are there worshiping. And then, just before communion, we say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Why, then, does the Church require Catholics to go to confession? Well, it does because Jesus instituted the sacrament of penance. And he said to the apostles, Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven, and whose sins you retain, they are retained. And so we, we didn't invent this, but it is something that comes from Christ himself. And the sacrament of penance did evolve in the, in the way it was celebrated through the centuries. But uh, there's always been an ecclesial sense of forgiveness. That is to say, a community sense of forgiveness. That is not just a person in their private relationship to Christ, but rather uh, it involves uh, because sin is not just a sin against God. Sin also wounds the body of Christ, which is the church. Mike from Madison says, The Church of England's governing body has voted to bless same-sex couples while leaving unchanged the definition of marriage as between a man and a woman. Some Anglican leaders objected that the Church cannot bless same-sex relationships and warned that the vote impairs full unity in the Anglican communion while backers of redefining marriage said they would revisit the question in future synods. Do you think this move can have global consequences for Christian unity? Well, Mike, you are touching upon one of the uh, most uh, neuralgic and uh, uh, and huge challenges that the uh, face the church is facing, Christianity's facing, in regard to one of its most fundamental doctrines, and that is the creation uh, of man and woman uh, as two separate sexes made in the image and likeness of God, complementary to one another, and ordered to the sacrament of marriage. And I can tell you that. You know, this is not just uh, uh, something that's developing in the Anglican Church, but it's also in Germany right now in the Catholic Church. 
And uh, this is in danger of creating a schism. This is in mm-hmm. danger of uh, creating a new separation, a new division right in our own Roman Catholic Church. And uh, Pope Francis uh, has said some pretty hard things to the German bishops, but at the present time, they don't, uh, they're not inclined to listen. But the reality is you cannot bless a, a sexual relationship that is contrary uh, to uh, the purpose uh, of uh, God's creation of a man and woman as two separate sexes ordered toward uh, sexual relations in the sacrament of marriage. And, you know, the bishops in the church, our church and in the United States for years have been saying that we have to extend uh, every uh, kindness and uh, to, to people who identify themselves as homosexual. We have to invite them to participate in the life of the church, but we cannot condone uh, homosexual acts that are not in keeping with uh, a creation of man and woman ordered to marriage. And this is very painful. A lot of people are very uh, angry about this, very opposed to it. But it is it is a fundamental truth about the human person that uh, uh, I can never imagine the church abandoning. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord God, during this Lent, we uh, see the challenges presented by our own human weakness and our sinfulness, and we ask for the grace of repentance and a deeper faith. At the same time, we recognize in our world and in the church many, many great tensions and controversies and divisions and even wars in Ukraine and other places. And we pray that you may give us the gift of peace, a peace in the world, peace in the church, peace in our hearts as we strive to do your holy will. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week when we celebrate the third Sunday of Lent together. Until then, enjoy this week. Thank you.